So last Sunday, Pastor Chris mentioned in an interview that Tim Ferriss did with Jordan Peterson recently. And my curiosity was piqued, so I listened to that interview this past week. And at one point in the interview, they discuss a statement that Jordan Peterson has made. He says in the interview, it seems to me that the purpose of life is to find a mode of being that is so meaningful that the fact that life is suffering is no longer relevant. Now, Peterson was quick to say that it's not necessarily the case that someone could actually do this. This is really hard to do. But he did assert that it's good to try to manage the suffering in our lives. Now, I would not express the purpose of life in the way Jordan Peterson has, but I think that he has stumbled upon two truths in this statement. First, he's right that life is suffering. And we might as well be honest about that and face it squarely. We have all suffered loss during the past year of this pandemic. But some of you sitting in this room or watching online may be experiencing acute physical or emotional affliction right now. Some of you may have tremendous pain or trauma in your past. And all of us will suffer in the future to different degrees and in different ways. But as Wesley wisely declares in the movie The Princess Bride, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. So the second truth in this statement is that the trick in dealing with suffering is not to deny it or to try to avoid it altogether, but to place your suffering in some larger context that makes sense of it and makes it bearable. If a person finds meaning for their life or finds a greater purpose, that person can endure hellacious suffering willingly because their hardship will be swallowed up by something bigger than themselves. Indeed, the fact of their suffering won't seem all that important anymore. So how can we do this, brothers and sisters? How can we find a mode of being that is so meaningful that the fact that life is suffering is no longer relevant? Let me answer this question indirectly at first by reading my favorite passage from J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Two Towers. Okay, the passage is a dialogue between Frodo and Sam as they are on the stairs of Chirith Ungol. And if you have read the book and then watched the movie, you will know that the movie changed this part of the book significantly. Anyway, this is a longer section from the book, but as I read it, please stay with me, okay? Because I think you will see, as the sermon progresses, 
just how relevant this dialogue is to the main point of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. So here's the two towers. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, and water all seem accursed, but so our path is laid. Yes, that's so, said Fram, said Sam, and we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures as I used to call them, I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have just been landed in them, usually. Their, pa their paths were laid out that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those, as just went on, and not to at all to a good end, mind you, at least not what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. No, sir, of course not, said Sam. Baron, now, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Irindil. And why, sir? I never thought of that before. You, we've got, you've got some of the light of it in the star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think we're, of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later or sooner. Now, to appreciate this dialogue, you need to remember that Frodo and Sam were on the verge of entering Mordor, and it was a dark and desperate time. They were thirsty and exhausted. They needed to find some source of hope and strength, and they do so in an unexpected way, by realizing that their lives and journey were just a small part of a larger story, a story that started long before they were born and would continue long past since when they've passed the scene. And recognizing that gave them some perspective and grounded them 
and filled them with fresh courage for their mission. Stories can have that power, right? At least the ones that really matter. Now I want to ask you, what sort of tale have we fallen into? Are we part of a great tale that never ends? I believe that one of the reasons that our contemporary American society is dealing with massive identity issues and mental health problems, political divisions and boredom and rootlessness is because our culture has largely lost any meta-narrative, any story of who we are, where we come from, and where we should be going. And without that, we have become pathetically weak and risk-averse. There's nothing worth suffering for in this world. So let's just try to be as safe and comfortable as possible. And yet, for followers of Jesus, this should not be so. Right? Scripture gives us a reason to live and a reason to suffer and die, right? Let me share a quote from Richard Bauckham that beautifully expresses how believers ought to relate to Scripture. Because you realize, don't you, that most of the Bible is historical narrative, right? Most of the Bible tells stories. And the backbone of all of Scripture is the eternal unfolding plan of God for this world and for us. The story that explains all other stories. One story to rule them all. So here is Bauckham's quote. To accept the authority of this biblical story is to enter it and to inhabit it It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story. It is to let this story define our identity and our relationship to God and to others. The Bible's narrative does not simply require assent. Like all stories, it draws us into its world, engages us imaginatively, allows us at our own pace to grow accustomed to it, But to accept the Bible's meta-narrative as authoritative is to privilege it above all other stories. It is to find our own identity as characters in that story. Characters whose lives are an as-yet-untold part of the story. Now, if you were to inhabit the story of the Lord of the Rings... And you might look a little like this, right? I don't know, is, is that a young Chris McGarvey in there? Somewhere, maybe? No? Okay. You would immerse yourself in that narrative world, and you would imagine yourself as playing a role in that story. But what does it look like to inhabit the biblical story? And how can inhabiting that story help us to transcend our suffering? 
Paul will show us the way in the passage that was read for us already, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. But let me ask one more question before we have a look at that passage. After reading the glorious truths in Ephesians chapter 2, are you tempted to skip over Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 before re-engaging with Paul's incredible prayer in 3, 14 to 21? I mean that seriously. I wouldn't be surprised if many of you have memorized verses from Ephesians 2 or bits from Paul's prayer in 3, 14 to 21. But I would be shocked if anyone here has memorized anything from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Rather, if we are honest, most, if not all of us, probably rush through this section and don't consider it all that relevant to our lives, or we are confused by it. And yet, I believe that this passage has the power to shape us in profound ways and to offer us real help in the period, in a period of prolonged suffering. So, I am entitling the message this morning, Inhabiting the Biblical Story. Well, after that long introduction, um, let's immerse ourselves in the passage. And as we consider this passage, the first thing that you may notice is that Paul starts the thought in verse 1 only to interrupt himself abruptly. The Greek grammar is very awkward here, which is why I think the ESV puts a dash after that Gentiles, do you see? So, verse 2 starts something of a digression in Paul's thought, a tangent, right? Now, when we compare verse 1 to verse 14, we see that Paul was probably intending to launch directly into his magnificent prayer about the love of Christ. And yet, something he dictated in verse 1 triggered a thought in his mind. He was thinking, well, before I convey my prayer for these believers, I need to stop and explain this first. Well, what was that? I believe that what gave Paul pause was his mention of being a prisoner. Right? He reasoned that the believers to whom he was writing might be tempted to misinterpret his imprisonment. They might think that Paul had done something wrong or that God was failing him, or that not all was according to plan. And that is a natural thought, right? I mean, imagine how you would feel if police burst through the doors and seized Pastor Chris or Pastor Tyler, put him in handcuffs, escorted him out of the building, and threw him into jail. You would probably think, oh no, what has he done? And what's going to happen to us? And you would likely be discouraged, disoriented, and full of troubling questions. Well, I think Paul anticipated that the letter recipients might feel a similar way when they thought about his imprisonment. 
And I think this interpretation is confirmed in verse 13, which is the last verse in this passage. Paul writes, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Right? Paul anticipates that his imprisonment and suffering might cause confusion and despair. And so in my understanding, verses 2 through 12 are Paul's digression to address this issue of his suffering and imprisonment before he gets to his prayer in verses, in verses 14 and following. And look again at verse 13, and in particular at that little word, so, right at the beginning of verse 13, which you could also translate, therefore. Right? This indicates that not only do verses 2 through 12 address Paul's imprisonment, but they also provide the reason why these believers should not become discouraged. In other words, what Paul writes in verses 2 through 12 are intended to give the believers courage in the face of their doubts and some way to make sense of his suffering. So how does Paul do this? How does he reassure the hearts of the Ephesians and others that his ministry is not veered off course? Well, verse 1 already begins to point to the answer. If you look at it again, Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He is not ultimately a prisoner of Rome. He is Jesus' prisoner. And he is a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. His imprisonment is serving them. It has a larger purpose. It is part of a larger story. Then sandwiched between verses 1 and 13, there are just two long and complicated sentences in the Greek. Verses 2 through 7 is one sentence, and verses 8 through 12 are another. And you will notice at the beginning of each sentence... Paul speaks of the grace of God that was given to him. In this case, the grace of his apostleship. So here is my basic uh, understanding of this passage. If you go to the next slide. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that he is suffering in prison because of grace the grace that God has given to him. And the rest of this passage simply develops and further describes the grace of Paul's apostleship. Once the Ephesian believers recognize this grace for what it is, when they understand how Paul and they themselves fit into God's unfolding plan, then they were no longer despair. Indeed, they will consider present suffering to be glory. Verse 13. Their perspective will be transformed. So let's look at these two Greek sentences, starting with verses 2 through 7, which I am labeling a mystery revealed. So in verse 3, Paul immediately describes this stewardship 
of God's grace as a mystery that has been entrusted to him, a mystery made known to him by revelation. And as most of you probably know, the biblical term mystery does not refer to something that's incomprehensible or a puzzle that needs to be solved. Rather, it is a disclosed secret. Right? You notice verse 5. This mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And in verse 9, Paul writes about the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So this secret that was hidden for ages has now been revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets, including Paul himself. And Paul writes about this mystery, thereby disclosing it. I think in verse 3, Paul is actually referring to earlier portions of the letter, especially chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 that we heard about last week. And by reading the letter aloud and hearing it, the Ephesians and others may also perceive the insight that was granted to Paul. And pause here for a second to appreciate that. You too, by reading this letter, can perceive the greatest mystery of all time, a secret of the universe, what Gandalf might call the turn of the tide. Right? And verse 6 then summarizes the content of this mystery. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Now for Paul and for first century Jews, an, an understanding, um, excuse me, for Paul and for first century Jews and understanding Gentiles, this was a paradigm shift of epic proportions, right? A shocking revelation. A great mystery indeed. But what is most often our reaction to this? Right? <sighs> right? Don't we take this for granted? Don't we just assume that Gentiles, we Gentiles ought to be co-heirs and co-members and co-partakers with Jews? Right? For Paul, verse 6 was a dramatic and unexpected burst of revelatory fireworks. And for us, it's like the dull fizzle of a sparkler, right? Whoop-de-doo. However, if that is essentially our reaction, then we have hardly even begun to inhabit the biblical story or comprehend its plotline because... Verse 6 is hot stuff in the first century, right? This is groundbreaking news. This is an unimaginable achievement that could only be accomplished through the gospel, the death of Israel's Messiah and God's Son. 
Now, Paul's explanation of this mystery obviously compresses a massive span of the Bible's narrative into just a few words. But there is an epic story underlying these verses. An entire narrative world. Right? Last week, Chris described the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile in the first century and how some Jews despised Gentiles, calling them dogs. Remember? Now, the Jewish superiority complex cannot be justified from God's perspective, but I want you to see how it was at least understandable from a human perspective, right? When the Jews return from the Babylonian exile, Nehemiah implements reforms, including the purification of the temple, the keeping of the Sabbath, and the rightful distinction between Israel and the other nations, which had been blurred through intermarriage and idolatry. And Nehemiah's concluding testimony is this, right? I cleanse them, that's the people of Israel, from everything foreign. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, within a hundred years, the land of Israel would be invaded again by Alexander the Great. And although his army represented a military threat, the deeper and more insidious threat was a cultural one. You see, when Alexander conquered the land, he brought Greek culture with him. And the people of Israel were drawn to the sophisticated civilization of the Greeks, even to the point where some young Jewish men were trying to reverse the sign of circumcision so they could exercise naked in the Greek gymnasium without shame. Now, this cultural threat of Hellenism came to a head under the reign of Antiochus IV, who in 167 BC invaded Jerusalem. I think there's a picture of that. And sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, deliberately polluting it. And Antiochus banned the practice of the Jewish religion, including circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath keeping. Forbidden. So what was a righteous Jew to do? Simply stand by and allow the Jewish way of life and the worship of the true God to be eradicated? So here's a description of the suffering of this period by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. He writes, And indeed, many Jews there who there were who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of the fear of the penalty that was announced. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, but did pay a greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to the disobedient, on which account they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments, for they were whipped with rods, and their bodies were torn to pieces and were crucified. 
Okay, Jews were crucified for the freedom to circumcise their sons and keep the law, to maintain their religious identity and preserve the way of life given to them by God. They considered that their culture was worth fighting for. They had a reason to suffer. During this tribulation, a great Jewish champion arose who, like King David, overthrew the Gentile oppressors against all odds. His name was Mattathias, and one of his sons, Judas Maccabee, cleansed the Jerusalem temple three years after it was desecrated, a great act of deliverance that is still commemorated today in the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. So here's what you need to understand, friends. Throughout Jewish history, it was the faithful remnant who were concerned to keep the law and maintain the distinction between the people of God and the foreign nations. And throughout history, it was those who compromised, who abandoned the God of Israel, who claimed that circumcision counts for nothing. And after all, did not even Jesus himself tell the Canaanite woman, that Gentile, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? So when the Holy Spirit fell on the uncircumcised Gentile Cornelius and his non-kosher household, is it any wonder that Peter and those Jews who were with him were amazed? And is it any wonder that a council was convened in Jerusalem to make sense of what God is doing? And during that council, Peter rises to say, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You see what Peter is saying. He is claiming that God has finally dealt with the problem that started in the Garden of Eden and that was highlighted in the flood. That is the wicked human heart. And through the gospel, through the death of the res and resurrection of Jesus, God did what the law never could. He brought about the cleansing of the heart and the definitive forgiveness of sins so that his original plan for creation could be carried forward so that all nations could worship the true God so that finally the earth could be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, brothers and sisters, have you entered into this story? Do you inhabit it? Does this story, the story of the Bible, define your identity? And do you view yourselves as characters in this great tale that never ends. 
The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. The Bible is not merely a list of abstract doctrines to believe. Rather, the Bible is primarily a storybook, except the story it tells is true, and it is the only story that really matters. So I believe that by proclaiming the mystery of God, long hidden, but now revealed, Paul in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, invites us to enter into the biblical story and let it capture our imagination so that it becomes our own story, transforming the way in which we interpret our suffering and all of reality. So let's move on now to verses 8 through 12, the second sentence in Greek, which I am labeling a message to preach. So if this story is true, then it must be proclaimed, unfolded, explained. And that is exactly what Paul writes in verses 8 and 9. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And God's purpose in Paul's preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles was to create a multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural church that would manifest God's manifold wisdom. Verse 10. You see, by weaving together so many twists and turns in the plot of this story, by introducing surprising but ultimately satisfying developments, by creating dramatic tension and then resolving it. God has written in human history a story that displays his multi-layered, diversified, and richly intricate wisdom, all to the praise of his glorious grace. And the story is not only epic in scope, involving the whole world. It is not only wide-sweeping, encompassing all of history. The story and drama is cosmic in its dimensions. And it is a display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It penetrates realms seen and unseen, brothers and sisters. And at the center stage of God's celestial plan is what? It's us, the church. We are the primary evidence of God's wisdom and love. And the realization of his eternal plan in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Christ, we have regained the access to God that was lost by our first ancestors. We can approach the God of the universe 
with confidence and boldness as one of his own children. So I ask you again this morning, what sort of tale have we fallen into? What kind of mind-blowing, breathtaking mystery is this? That we would find ourselves a central part of the greatest story ever told. So what application can we make of this passage then this morning? At one level, this text may seem distant to us, right? None of us are troubled that Paul is in prison. So Paul's encouragement not to lose heart over what he suffered seems irrelevant to us, right? I think the secret to applying this passage to our daily lives is not to apply it at all, but rather to crawl inside of it. As Bauckham said, to accept the authority of this story is to enter, enter it and to inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in the story. It is to let this story define our identity and our relationship to God and to others. And the best way to do that that I have found is to immerse yourself in biblical theology. Now, some of you may be saying, biblical theology? What's that? Isn't all proper theology supposed to be biblical? And well, yes, but what I mean is biblical theology as the task of tracing the plot line of the Bible to discern the unfolding story of Scripture. And if this is new to you, then I would recommend buying and reading one of these two books. Vaughn Roberts has a book called God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible, and Graham Goldsworthy, According to Plan, The Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible. Reading one of these two books, maybe after The Wisdom Pyramid, will more effectively draw you into the biblical story the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God so that you can begin to inhabit that narrative world. And although it may not make much sense how tracing the Bible storyline from Genesis to Revelation can be an exercise with any practical benefit, all I can leave you with is my personal testimony that Perhaps nothing else has grounded me in the faith and shaped my identity and worldview, directed my values and life path more than studying biblical theology. So I would highly commend it to you, brothers and sisters, as I believe the Apostle Paul would as well. So, to conclude, in our troubled times and for the suffering that lies ahead for each one of us, we need now more than ever to find meaning and purpose for our lives. And to do that, we need to broaden out our perspective, to put our small but not insignificant lives in a much wider 
context. The story that God has planned from eternity past and that will stretch into the coming ages. And when we do so, we will find the courage to endure suffering. And even that suffering for Jesus becomes our glory. Let's pray. Father, this is the greatest story ever told. It is a tale that never ends. Your great mystery, God, which was hidden for generations and generations, but which you made known to your holy apostles and which we now can understand today. Help us to get inside of that story, to make it our own story, God, to live in the world that is portrayed in the Bible. Pray that we would immerse ourselves, God, that into your word that we might gain a broader perspective, a wider context, Lord, to understand our lives and the suffering that we are enduring. I pray that you would help us not to lose heart, but know that we have access, freedom of access to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.